This is Dialogue, a podcast of the Lenten preaching series recorded live at Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis. I am Heidi Rupke, the Lenten preaching series coordinator. Tonight, my guest is Dr. Ellen Davis. Dr. Davis is the Amos Reagan Kearns Distinguished Professor of Bible and Practical Theology at Duke Divinity School. The author of 11 books and numerous articles, Dr. Davis explores the Hebrew scriptures in ways that shed light on contemporary issues such as climate change and interfaith relations. Her research also brings her into collaboration with dancers, musicians, and painter Makoto Fujimura as they interpret the Psalms through multiple media. Dr. Davis spends much of her time teaching and writing or preparing to teach and write. I can say from personal experience that she takes books of the Bible that can appear intimidating and renders them both understandable and compelling. We are honored to host her at Calvary this evening. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be with you. Welcome. Um, So I'm gonna start with a question. Um, I'm a big fan of Krista Tippett's uh, podcast, On Being, and she often asks about the spiritual background of one's childhood, but I'm going to twist that question since tonight our, our topic is a faithful ecology. And so I'm going to ask, what was the landscape and the food of your childhood? Okay. I grew up on an island in the San Francisco Bay, not Alcatraz. Um, <laughs> So it was extraordinarily beautiful, and it was, I would say, semi-rural. We were 17 miles by road, a lot less than that, as the seagull flies from San Francisco. Um, But because we knew that the place that we lived was special and in some ways unique, I intuited that land is invaluable. Uh, And this was before the sort of real estate bubble or whatever in the Bay Area. Growing up, I spent probably nine months of the year barefoot outside. Mm. And food, my mother was English-Canadian, so I would say that we had mostly English food with a sort of San Francisco twist so, Can I know, ask what that is? A lot of salami, anchovies, okay. um, <laughs> spaghetti, um, cheese, and Caesar salad. You know, sort of strong flavors, a lot of fish, seafood. And it was homemade, it was fresh. Mm-hmm. And I think I sort of learned early on that food should be good and it should be good for you that you should know how to make it, that it was fun to make it with others, and that wasting food is foolish. And I don't think anyone ever said those things, but it was just part of the environment. So it it was actually way into my adulthood that I realized that those are not universal principles. Mm-hmm. Was some of your food grown locally, or it was certainly prepared locally, Certainly, the fish was local. Mm -hmm. The fish and the seafood would have been local. San Francisco sourdough bread Mm. has to come from San Francisco. It does. And and a lot of the cheeses were local cheeses. 
the landscape in which I grew up did not lend itself to growing a lot of food because mm-hmm. it was very, well, we were an island, so it was a hill and very much shaded. So, but, you know, but there were, there were lots of wild plum trees, for instance, around, mm-hmm. and so we always had jam and, and cobbler and that kind of thing. So some, but it wasn't, we weren't in the Midwest, so people didn't, you know, we're not staking out vegetable gardens in the way that one might think of. Uh, yes, I, I grew up with those Midwestern vegetable gardens. I know of which you speak there, yes. So we're going to be talking a lot about land tonight and our connection to land, and, and food is one of the most visceral connections we have to the land. Um, and you wrote a book that's kind of famous in the theological circles called Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture. And in that book, you describe a moment of discovery uh, when you found work by Wes Jackson of the Land Institute and uh, work by poet, essayist, and novelist Wendell Berry. I was wondering if you could take us to that time in your life, that discovery, and tell us how it has shaped your research and your life practices. So I know exactly when it was. I was 40, so it was 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I had just been to visit my family in California. And by that time, my parents were living not in the Bay Area, but one county further up in the wine country. Still an area that was actually an area that was more agricultural than Mm -hmm. the Bay Area. And I don't drive a car. And so a friend of mine came to spend the day with me and we went for a drive to places that I had not been since I was a child. And so I was shocked to see the change in the landscape in in my, you know, say the 30 plus years of my active memory at that point to recognize I was seeing highways running across farmland that I remembered, you know, sort of at the front door kind of. And I remember thinking, if this kind of change could happen in my still, at that time, relatively young life, and because I'm a biblical scholar, I tend to think in millennia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I thought about the other landscape I know fairly well, which is the land of Israel, Palestine, and have some reasonable notion of what has happened in that landscape over four millennia. And I thought, if in the four decades of my life, this is what's happened, we don't have four millennia ahead of us. Mm. You know, it's simply not sustainable. It was really a shock to me. I was living in New Haven, Connecticut at the time, so I came back, and a friend of mine who had also spent the summer in California, although he himself is a New Yorker, And so we were sort of comparing notes, and we were both disturbed. And I remember her saying, Ellen, has God forsaken his world? And I said, no, but he's mad as hell. (laughs) Um, And so I decided I would start teaching a course on, at the time I called it biblical ecology or biblical theology of land, those were sort of the two titles. And there wasn't, I didn't know anyone who taught such a course. I'd never heard of such a course, but I thought, well, you have to start somewhere. So 
I decided that I would go down to the undergraduate, it was, I was at Yale at the time, I would go down to the undergraduate library and just read the shelves, because I knew if I went to the graduate library, you know, I would never get out alive. I mean, this is a topic that was not my area at all. But I thought, okay, the undergraduate library, I ought to be able mm -hmm. to get something out of. So I just went down to the soil sciences area, and I was reading the shelves, you know, just mm -hmm. the titles on the books. And there was one title that caught my eye, and I pulled it off the shelf. And as I pulled it off, I thought, whoever came up with this title knows how the Bible thinks about land. And it was called Meeting the Expectations of the Land. And it was by Wes Jackson, Wendell Berry, and Bruce Coleman. It was a set of essays. And that was then the beginning of my finding contemporaries who could help me think about land issues in a way that I could bring into conversation with the Bible. And fairly shortly thereafter, Wes Jackson, who's founder of the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, came to Yale and gave a lecture. And he began talking about the changes that had happened in the world in the 12,000, 10 to 12,000 years since the beginning of agriculture. And I thought, okay, I understand how this man thinks. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then I went to the Land Institute and in sabbatical and we began to have conversation and yeah. it, it, it got me into something that was not native to me because... I'm a San Franciscan. Right. And I think that that title, Meeting the Expectations of the Land, is so powerful because we often see ourselves, the humans, as actors on the land mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. the land, you know, has expectations of us is right. both thrilling and kind of terrifying when we think about how yeah. we're doing. Yeah. The land is not, from a biblical perspective, the land is not an it. Say more about that. It's a creature of God. It is the, the biblical category under which land would fall is Elohim, mm -hmm. the works of God's hands. Well, humans fall under that same category. Hmm. Um, and so, for instance, in Genesis 1, when God begins issuing commands to the creatures, the first creature being light is called into being, and the creatures respond mm -hmm. after they're each according to its own kind, so to speak. And so let the earth bring forth growth, and the earth brought forth growth. So mm -hmm. there's, I mean, it's quite, and at the end of each of those sort of moments in the creation story, there's a refrain, and it was so. So you see each of the creatures responding to God's will. Interestingly, you don't have that after the creation of the human beings. Hmm. Um, That's unwritten. Yes, and so, you know, you might say that the jury is out 
on, you know, on whether we are responding to God's will in the same way that what we would consider the non-sentient creatures respond. I think it's quite open question from a biblical perspective if creatures that don't have a brain, for instance, would be considered non-sentient. Hmm. I mean, since there isn't even a Hebrew word for brain. Can we dig a little bit into um, agrarianism and that sort of lens for reading scripture? In your book, Raylan Whiteley des- defines it as a way of thinking and ordering life in community that is based on the health of the land and of living creatures. And you've touched on that a bit here. But what does this agrarian reading of the Hebrew scriptures bring to the table? Maybe even beyond the the Genesis creation account, Mm -hmm. if we consider the land in some of the Psalms or in Isaiah or some of the prophets? Well, I would say that it completely transforms a reading of scripture if you recognize that God is engaging with the non-human creatures before the human creatures and never ceases to engage with those creatures. And so God says in Leviticus, for instance, which is a, a very green book, a book of the Bible that Christians on the whole think is not important. Or scary. Yeah. I mean, I remember one of my professors in graduate school saying, why would you read that? There's nothing in there but laws. I said, well, exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's a very, you know, it's a very green book, a very uh, creation-oriented book. And God says, the land is mine. Any questions? You know. And I often say that from a biblical perspective, Our notion of covenant is a two-way relationship Mm -hmm. between humans and God. And with a horizontal dimension amongst human beings to some extent. But Mm -hmm. those are the two partners, humans and God. Also in Leviticus, there's, there's a great passage where God is envisioning a time when Israel will have been booted out of the land um, for disobedience. And the land then will respond to God as God intends it to. The land will keep its Sabbaths when the the humans are no longer around to intervene, to get in the Mm. way. Mm. Uh, And so after this time, this sort of recovery period, you might say, for God and the land without the humans in the land, then God says God will begin to think better of the Israelites after Mm -hmm. this respite. And he says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac I will remember And my covenant with Abraham, I will remember. And God, you see, is working backwards. Usually it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now it's Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. So working back through the generations. And my covenant with Abraham, I will remember. And the land, I will remember. Hmm. Which the implication is that the land is the first ancestor. Which is actually exactly what Wes Jackson at the land 
Institute says, he says, the land comes first. Yeah, I see connections there with more indigenous spirituality, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the land and creatures thereon are characters that move the story forward, that impact humans, and that humans have a responsibility to... Go and, ahead. of course, there's, there's a lot of similarity between... It is a question whether Israel is an indigenous culture in Canaan. I think historically it actually is. I I think Israel Mm -hmm. arises out of a Canaanite population and with also outsiders coming in. But essentially I think it's an indigenous culture. And all around the world, indigenous cultures are about living in the place and within the limits of the place in which Mm -hmm. you find yourself. Hmm. So it's actually when I began working on this project, part of my thinking was that when Christians begin getting interested in ecological issues, they immediately think they need to go outside Christian or biblical resources to, I'm, I'm, as you know, from the West Coast, so that's at least a sort of West Coast predis- predisposition. You need to get outside and go to Native American traditions. There's nothing wrong with that except that so much of the same wisdom is within the biblical text. But because of the way we have been trained to read the biblical text, we read it in a highly individualistic and personalistic way, which is completely ahistorical. 98% of Israelites, 98, 99% of Israelites in the biblical period were farmers. Hmm. So our way of reading it in an industrialized society in a highly individualized way is completely right. incoherent. And when I taught in South Sudan, and I would be teaching agrarian people, and they would say, well, this is the way we think, but this is not the way we've been taught. Ah. You know, and it's exactly that. You know, it's the way their culture thinks, mm-hmm. but it's not the way, frankly, the Western missionaries hmm. taught them how to read. And so studying Leviticus with Sudanese Christians was... I mean, they could have spent... They could, you know, they, I just, I couldn't ever close the book with them. They kept coming up with more and more and more because this was their world. Yeah. I wonder if our clergy are going to, you know, put Sudan on their travel list now. Like, finally, we can get into Leviticus. Like, we've been wanting to. I noticed that you said a phrase, living within the limits of the, of the place we're in. And I think many of us tend to rail against limits, whether they're personal or they are more communal limits. But um, we're in Lent right now, uh, which is a season that is supposed to remind us of our ultimate limit of, of death. And we start the season with ashes on our forehead and the words, from dust you are, and to dust you shall return. These words come from Genesis and are said from God to humans. And again, most of us are thinking about our, our deaths um, when, we, when we get that, that cross and those ashes. But I'm wondering if an agrarian reading of this from dust you are, and to dust you shall return, of that text 
um, can tell us something about how to live rather than just that we are mortal. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really nice observation. And I'm going to play with a couple of Hebrew words which are not actually in that phrase, but they're sort of within the same word cloud, you might say. Sounds good. So the Hebrew word for human being is Adam, like Adam, mm -hmm. okay? It's just a common noun, meaning a human being. The Hebrew word for fertile soil, not dust, but fertile soil, is Adama. Mm -hmm. So humans are Adam created from the Adama. It's, this is one of the very rare instances of a Hebrew pun working to a limited extent in, in, in English. So we are humans from humus. Uh -huh. um, what that doesn't, what the English doesn't get, there are gains and losses always when you go between two languages. What it doesn't get is that Adam and Adama, so human and fertile soil, are both related to the word Adom, which means reddish-brown. So sort of a mix between the color of the curtains and the color of, of the paneling here. That's Adom in hmm. Hebrew. And so what it's end, it is the color of the soil in the Levant, especially in the in the hill country, which is what Israel occupied most of the time, and not the plains. Um, its geological name is terra rosa, mm. red soil. Yep. But Adom is also the color of skin of peoples indigenous to uh -huh. the Levant. So you can see, you know, what uh -huh. it's evoking a kinship. Yeah. Uh, Adam from Adama. Um, and in English, I would say you don't get that resonance, but the words human and humus are also related to the word humility, ah. uh, which, of course, means lowly, earth, you know, mm -hmm. earthy. So I would say in, in somewhat different ways, both of those puns are evoking something about a way we are meant to be seeing ourselves in the world. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about ancient peoples and the ecological disasters that they would have experienced? I mean, when I think about the land and, of course, globalization now, I'm thinking about climate change. There's something that keeps me up at night. It's, it's thinking about my kids and climate change. But we aren't the first people who have experienced huge disasters. Sure. Um, how would Israelites or ancient peoples have experienced disaster, and what would it have meant to them? I'll focus on, on Israel because it's different in different places. The Levant is semi-arid. Uh, four years, this is before climate change, which is affecting it drastically now, and overdrawing of the aquifers. So before those things, just in normal times, so to speak, four years out of ten years are drought years. Wow. Uh, which is to say that what we think of as, we tend to think because it's called a land uh, 
um, a land, we translate that into English flowing with milk and honey, but the verb is probably better translated trickling with milk and honey. Um, so, you know, we're not talking about a rich landscape where the soil is measured in feet, like mm. the Nile Valley. We're talking about soil that is measured in inches. Okay. Um, so on a limestone, you know, skeleton. So Israelite farmers are always contending with the sort of twin threats of drought and desertification. The winds are, winds are high in that region, so erosion mm -hmm. is very high. Earthquakes were a threat, not a continual threat, but they are one of the markers of time, um, so many years after the earthquake. Um, lightning fires, mm -hmm. locusts. <laughs> I mean, the book of Joel is all, it's actually a debate amongst biblical scholars. Is the book of Joel about a locust invasion, which is like an enemy army destroying everything, or is it about an en enemy army invading, which is like locusts destroying yeah. everything? Machniks, you know. The point is, locusts are devastating. Mm -hmm. um, so, and all of these things are seen from a biblical perspective, in some ways because of the triangulated relationship that covenant is amongst land, God, and people. All of these are seen as disturbances in our relationship with God. And again, in Sudan, when I was working with some of these themes in the Nile Valley, and one of the bishops I worked with, who's my student from Virginia Seminary, someone with an excellent education, he said that Rat infestations were one of their major concerns. And he said, when the rats, you know, get into the house, the first thing we do is ask, what is out of sorts in our relationship with God? And huh. I said, and then you stop the holes. Yeah. You know, but, but it's interesting. I mean, that is, that, that's something that I think about seriously. Uh, again, this notion that the what we think of as pests are from their perspective, they're a sign. They're also a threat, they're a problem, mm -hmm. but, and again, I think of them one of the one of the principles of a theological school saying, Dr. Davis, what should we do about the Nile leopard? I said, no, that's a question I've not been asked before. <laughs> um, but you know, recognizing that this is a precious creature of God, and at the same time, it represents a great threat to them. Mm -hmm. And I would say that Israelites live in a similar, similar world. They know that ultimately... The wild animals are more responsive to God than they are to them. And they're not trying to, I mean, it would be inconceivable for them 
to think of eradicating a species, that humans could have that kind of control over their environment. Would that be considered hubris? Well, or? it would be so inconceivable that that humans... I mean, I don't think they could even... Their imaginations could even get there. Okay. But I think they would be quite staggered by the idea... I mean, the whole notion of the sixth great age of species extinction in which, with which we reckon recognizing that we are not, we are very much complicit in that, that would be truly another planet from a biblical perspective. Hmm. So you mentioned that ancient peoples would see a plague or an earthquake as a sign of a disturbance in the relationship with God, part of that triangle, I would say some modern preachers have tried to go that tack as well and blame certain disasters on certain people groups or certain behaviors. What do you, what do you see going on there? I mean, I can go more specifically. Than, right. But, no, but. I, no, I know what you're referring to. The word that's coming to my mind is evasion. Say more about that. Evasion and scapegoating. I mean, I would say that no people, no culture or society has lived so far from the world that would be imaginable to the Bible as we do hmm. in terms of our mater material practices as I've just been suggesting. Mm -hmm. um, we know that a number of our material practices create imbalances within natural systems. And by material practices, you mean consumption of goods? Um, of the way we use energy the way we get from one place to another place, including me getting from Durham to Memphis this morning. Everything in the way we engage with the non-human works of God's hands is very, very much of it. Uh, we have, I would say we have not reckoned with the cost of. Hmm. You know, the very fact that I don't know any other society in which we spend as little of our income on food as we do in this country. Right. And because of subsidies and, um, and because large agriculture. Yeah, and because we're willing to let the land pay the cost right. for cheap food. But the cost has to be paid. So I think that that, you know, identifying a group of people from whose behavior you separate yourself um, and seeing that as the problem for which, you know, mm -hmm. whatever uh, is being punished, that, again, evasion is the best right. word that I can come up with for it. It seems like the opposite of humility, of 
being one with mm-hmm. the one mm-hmm. with the land. Yeah. So you wrote that the ecological crisis you you posit that that is a principally moral and theological rather than technological crisis. Could we unpack that a little bit? What do you mean it's not just the fact that we've created cars or created airplanes, but you say it's theological and moral? I guess I would say that one effect of our industrialization and specialization so that very few of us are directly involved in the production of the things that are most needed to sustain life. Food, shelter, fiber. You know, Clothing. Few of us are directly involved in providing for our own needs or the needs of our community. Um, in a direct way. And we tend to value monetarily and in terms of social prestige, people who are somewhat removed from those lines of work. Mm -hmm. I would say that that has made us, has made it more difficult for us to recognize ourselves as the creatures of God So Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, and a very fine theologian, has said, amongst us, the art of being creatures is almost a lost art. Hmm. If that's the case, and I think it is largely the case, if that's the case, then it makes the Bible incoherent because that is the biblical understanding of who we are. I had an interesting experience. This was early in my working in this area. I was at the Land Institute. I've mentioned that to you already in Salina, Kansas. And I was doing a workshop on the first few chapters of Genesis with the um, the Land Institute interns, most of whom were graduate students, maybe all of whom were graduate students, masters or PhD in soil sciences. And so Wes Jackson said, you know, teach them about Genesis, Ellen. So we were having this conversation. I don't think any of these people went to church. And they were all about the same age as my seminarians in Uh, New Haven, Connecticut. And it happened, I said, just last week, I was teaching some of this material with my students in New Haven. And And in the third chapter of Genesis, God says, Cursed be the Adama, the fertile soil, on your account. Okay, this is to the humans after the first violation in Eden, the first sin. It's, it's an eating violation. They eat against the rules. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I said, now, when my students in New Haven heard that, they thought, that's unfair, you know, that the land should 
suffer for what the humans have done. I said, so is this just a typical grumpy God of the Old Testament scene, you know, of which there are so many? And they looked at me as though I had taken leave of my senses. And they said, well, if we're out of sync with the land, if we're out of sync with God, and none of them was religious, if in any conventional sense, if we're out of sync with God, the land is going to be the first place that shows up. Hmm. And that was just so elementary to them. You know, why are we even talking about this? And you have a PhD? Um, So, I mean, that's just one instance, and it's been fascinating to me every time I go back to the Land Institute to teach. And again, usually I'm talking to people who, if they grew up in the church, they've distanced themselves from the church. And I can't remember, I think I was talking about Proverbs a few years ago, to a group of 700 people in a barn, and... I was just doing biblical exegesis because it's all I know how to do. Good skill. And you could have heard a pin drop, and afterwards people came up to me and they said, all of this makes so much sense, but this is not what we hear when we go to church. Hmm. This is where it it often becomes kind of Jesus and little me. Um, And they said, you know, this we understand. Oh. Um, so, I, I mean, that's what I mean when I say it is a... Your theology becomes distorted if your material and economic life is out of sync with the mm-hmm. limits of, yeah. of natural systems, what the Bible would call the works of God's hands. I love that image of people in a barn listening to biblical exegesis, and um, it makes me it makes me glad. And so, as we're wrapping up here, I'm going to ask you: um, today, you preached about hope, and uh, one way that you envisioned it was as a a rope that a a rock climber might use. We've talked a lot about a lot of sobering disconnections, out of sync broken covenant today. Where is that rope for you right now? Where, where do you sense it? Where do you mm-hmm. hold on to it? First of all, it's in my students, the fact that they all now come to seminary knowing that these are issues they're going to have to be prepared to address that they're not going to go away in their lifetime and they can't be ignorant of them. That's very different than it was 15 years ago. And they expect me and my colleagues to be able to help them say something intelligent about this. Um, That, you know, when I first started teaching in this area 30 years ago, I remember, again, I was in Connecticut, but I remember one church along the shoreline saying, this is what I wanted to teach. And the person said, well, couldn't you teach something theological? <laughs> I said, yeah, I kind of thought I would. Um, you know, but that would not be and will not be the mindset of my students when they are in a church. And that encourages me. 
And also, I have cousins. I heard about a young person today um, who's now working on an organic farm. And that wasn't, that wasn't true. And this is someone just, you know, at a, at a regular college deciding that she needs to know something about agriculture. So she's working on an organic farm, taking a course in agriculture. That wasn't happening in my generation. Hmm. So I think of Wendell Berry saying, I think it was the 35th anniversary of The Unsettling of America, that wonderful book of essays. And so there was a gathering um, in celebration of that. And I remember Wendell saying, and there were probably 300 of us there, and he said, well, when I wrote that book, everyone who agreed with me was related to me. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, these things are... Progress. Progress. There's been progress. The situation, if anything, is worse. But the awareness has grown hugely. And that's... I'll take that for hope. All right. I have a poem for us. A lot of Hebrew scripture is poetic in nature, drawing from images of the land. And this is a a poem written by Linda Hogan called Song for the Turtles of the Gulf. We had been together so very long, you willing to swim with me just last month, myself merely small in the ocean of splendor and light, the reflections and distortions of us. And now when I see the man from British Petroleum lift you up dead from the plastic bin of death, he with a smile, you burned and covered with red-black oil, torched and pained, all I can think is that I loved your life. The very air you exhaled when you rose, old great mother, the beautiful swimmer, the mosaic growth of shell so detailed, no part of you simple, meaningless, or able to be crafted by any human, only destroyed. How then can they learn the secret importance of your beaten heart, the eyes of another intelligence than ours, maybe greater, with claws, flippers, plastron? Forgive us for being thrown off true. Forgive our trespasses in the eddies of the water where we first walked. Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a 99-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent and invites a few of them onto this podcast to further the conversation. Dialogue is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Sam Bryant, our sound engineer. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about the home of dialogue,